0: Unlimited growth, the New Testament pattern for church organization and growth. Now we're going to talk about the five biblical ministries. So let's review briefly what we've talked about. We've talked about a lot and each lesson I'm, I'm going to shrink it down and give you the main things and move on. All right. So just a little two minute review. First of all, the Bible shows us that the potential for church growth is unlimited. We've talked about that. That's what we're shooting for when it comes to growth. Number two, the Bible provides a pattern and an example to help us organize the church in such a way that it is poised for unlimited growth. So there needs to be a structure in place to support the growth that we are uh, anticipating. Number three, the New Testament pattern can be summarized as follows train the church to function effectively and simultaneously in the five areas of biblical ministry in order to promote unlimited growth. And then number four, the relationship between ministry and growth is the following. The church grows in proportion to its carrying out the five biblical ministries. So these are the main points that we covered in our last session. A summary statement could be the following. The church grows in proportion to its effectiveness in carrying out the five ministries described in Acts chapter two. So the more effective you are, the better you are at carrying out the five ministries. The more those five ministries are operating simultaneously, the more growth you have. I want to show you um, a little video here. Um, and you might recognize, anybody remember the Ed Sullivan Show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the Ed Sullivan Show. And he always had this guy on. This guy was on like every year, maybe twice a year. I think you'll recognize him. And um, I, 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 I show this video because in a visual way it demonstrates the idea of the ministry system. OK. So here's the... Here's the <laughs> So that's church work. Isn't that church work? Isn't that how it works? Getting things going. Getting those plates up. Do you notice how many plates he had? up? No, he had five. Yeah, up up in the air there. He had five going, spinning, right? Getting them going. Then he would drop things. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing. You get a ministry going and another one going, and things are going great. Oh, all of a sudden, you, the, the the coordinator for all the adult classes uh, is moving to Oklahoma City. Oh my, I'm I'm missing two teachers. I got to find a new coordinator. Oh, that plate is starting to wobble up there. You know, whoops, got to give it a little. That's church work. It's not like you, know, you lock it. It's not like a computer. You lock it all in, hit the button and away it goes. No. Constantly, you're constantly you know, you know, stimulating, encouraging, motivating all the different areas of ministry, keeping them spinning, ongoing work. You can't stop or they just they fall. The point of this particular video was when all five are spinning simultaneously or all the plates up there, whatever they were, when they're spinning simultaneously, that's when the guy gets the applause, right? They don't applaud before. Everybody's sitting there waiting. And then finally when all the things are spinning and everything, then he gets his reward. He gets the applause. The point I'm making is when all the, when all the biblical ministries are spinning, they're, they're working, then, then the Lord begins to add. You get this synergy that begins to happen. I call it synergy, liftoff. All of a sudden it's got a life of its own. Things start to happen that you didn't even plan for. People are doing stuff in the name of the Lord in the church. You didn't even ask them to do it. They're just doing it on their own. You're finding out that some sister has taken it upon herself to you know, do whatever, some sort of ministry. We had one young guy, I was there a year before I found out that every Sunday afternoon he would take three or four communion kits and he'd go serve communion to all those individuals who were sick and shut in. In our congregation, nobody knew he was doing that. He was just doing that on his own. That was his ministry. So now that we understand the process, let's take a closer look at the ministries themselves and what they really are according to the New Testament. So in the second chapter of Acts, Luke describes five areas of ministry that the church is responsible for or active in. So let me name them as they appear in Acts chapter 2. Let's see now. There we go. So evangelism, education, fellowship, worship and service. These are the five areas of ministry that the church and here I use the word must. Must be active and effective in if it wants to grow. No matter what you do in church work, it somehow fits into one of these five areas of ministry that Luke describes in Acts chapter 2. And when I do this thing, you know, name your ministries, you, somebody will usually say, oh yeah, what about youth ministry? You know, what about dude? What about youth ministry? Isn't that the sixth ministry? And I go, no, youth ministry is under education. Because what we're doing is we're teaching the youth about evangelism. We're teaching the youth to obey the words of Christ. We're teaching the youth and helping them to integrate into the church. We're teaching the youth how to serve in the church. So youth ministry is very much a part of education. As a matter of fact, in our congregation, Bobby back there is the elder responsible for education. Not only adult education, but also for the youth minister and all that business, because it comes under that area. All right. So let's take a look at each ministry a little more closely. On Pentecost Sunday, we see Peter establish his evangelism ministry as he begins preaching the gospel to the crowd gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast In verses 14 to 41, which include a summary of Peter's sermon and the crowd's response to him, we see the basic elements of the ministry of evangelism. I'm going to now go more into detail in this lesson and and share with you what these ministries really are. And so the ministry of evangelism begins by preaching the gospel to the lost. Peter's summary point is, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Telling the story of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus to those who don't know it. Now there's a lot of ways to do this and I'll explain some in a moment, but suffice to say that the bottom line is to somehow communicate this information as a first priority. Also, part of evangelism is to encourage a response from the lost. Uh, Let's see if I've got that scripture. Yes. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he continued, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So not only does he give them the story, he urges a response from them. He encourages and continues to exhort people to respond with repentance and baptism. Peter did it by insisting they respond as soon as possible. We can do this by repeating the message and providing opportunity and encouragement. And then the third part, again still an evangelism ministry, baptizing repentant believers. Verse 41, so then those who had received His word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What is the mystery here exactly? What is the difficult thing to understand here about the evangelism ministry? It is the first ministry area And it is the communication of the gospel of Jesus to the lost with the objective that they respond with faith, repentance and baptism. Now this explains in a brief way what evangelism tries to accomplish, but not the way to accomplish it. There are a lot of ways or methods given to us in the New Testament to do evangelism or to be effective in evangelism ministry. Here are some. There's confrontational evangelism. Peter, Acts chapter 2. That's straightforward preaching, public speaking. This is my own personal approach to practice the ministry of evangelism. Uh, As I say, in college my, my major was in missions and church planting or organization, but my minor was in mass communication. And my interest for 35 years, I've been a preacher for 35 years, my interest has always been the use of media in the work of the church, always. From the very beginning I wanted to figure out how to use media in the work of the church how to use media to preach the gospel to the lost. Um, The goal, of course, for me, is to have a pulpit that has the widest reach possible. That's my goal. Some some individuals, they they work in a, a real live pulpit in a congregation and they serve in that way. My pulpit is an electronic pulpit. I want to reach a much wider audience and so that's why we use the Uh, We use the Internet. There's all kinds of ways to evangelize. Newspapers, uh, pamphlets, uh, meetings, uh, all kinds of things. All right. Another style of uh, evangelism is intellectual evangelism. Acts chapter 17, Paul at Athens. Christian writers, scholars, debaters who proclaim in books and in other ways. They explain the gospel. They provide proof of its authenticity in comparison to other religions and philosophies. That's evangelism. Where do you think preachers get a lot of their ideas? They get a lot of their ideas from books written by really smart guys. You know? That's a form of evangelism. Another type, testimonial evangelism. The demoniac in Luke chapter 8, after he was healed, what happened? He goes back the Lord sends them back. And then when the Lord comes back to that area, there are large crowds. How did the large crowds find out? Well, the demoniac went and told them. Look what the Lord did for me. It's one thing we don't do in the churches of Christ. You know, we don't like that word. Uh, give, me, give us your testimony. Give us your witness. Sounds too evangelical. But yet, that's a very biblical thing, a very powerful thing. Last, uh, in the last quarter on Wednesday night, I asked 13 different men, in our congregation to do a short devo and their devo was about um, give us your testimony. How did you come to Christ or what did He do for you that was meaningful in your life? Thirteen guys, not preachers or necessarily Bible school teachers, anything like that. I went out of my way to pick guys who are never in the pulpit and never in the classroom. And yet their testimony, their witness was a powerful thing every Wednesday night, something different, something unique. Testimonial evangelism, sharing with others what God has done for you. Interpersonal evangelism, Matthew, Luke, verse 5, what Jesus did with Matthew. He went and ate at Matthew's house, got involved in his life. Today we call it friendship evangelism. That's one way to evangelize. Invitational evangelism, the Samaritan woman in John 4, inviting people to Bible class or devotionals or worship, so they can hear the gospel and be with Christians. The Samaritan woman invited the villagers to come and hear Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is one of the ways that we use the most. I said one way we don't use is testimony, but one way we do use a lot is uh, invitational. And then one other one, service oriented evangelism. Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, for example. Dorcas impressed her community for Christ, with acts of benevolence in the name of Jesus. We have all kinds of good works that we do in the community. I know of many that you do in your community, providing food and clothing and other things, giving a testimony. Now not everybody can preach from the pulpit or befriend strangers, but each can find a way to share the gospel with the lost in order to bring the saving blood of Christ uh, to, uh, to individuals as they enter the waters of baptism. So the first area of ministry is the ministry of evangelism. Its objective is clear to share the gospel with the lost, with the view that they repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's my question. Are you consciously doing this in your community? Does that guy across the street there, have you managed to communicate to him in some way his or her lostness? Because if you haven't done that, then you're, 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 that plate is not spinning here in Ponca City. See what I'm saying? There has to be a conscious effort to actually communicate the information of the gospel to people who don't know it. And if we're not doing that in some way, then we don't have a, a ministry of evangelism. If we're doing it only once a year at a gospel meeting, for example, while well, we're doing it, but that plate's up there and it's kind of wobbly. It's not a spinning See what I'm saying? Okay, Education. Let's talk about that. Education, ministry. They were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching. Once people become Christians through baptism, the work of teaching them to know all of Jesus' teachings and to obey them begins. The teaching ministry of the church can be accomplished in a variety of ways because we see a variety of teaching methods in the New Testament as well. For example, they taught the disciples throughout the week in the temple area and in homes. Acts 2.42 and 46, we see them teaching in the temple. Acts 1.15 to 26, while they were in the upper room at that time. They taught on the Lord's day when they gathered for communion. Paul, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. They taught in public meeting places throughout the week and Sunday. Again, Paul, the school of Tyrannus in Acts chapter 19. So there's no specific command as to where or how they were to be taught, only what they were to be taught in Matthew 28, verse 20. So what were they supposed to be taught? The teaching of Jesus had to be taught, not psychology, not religious opinion. The Bible is the primary subject for learning in the church. Come on, folks. You only got them for 40 minutes, once a week. And so, if, if your Bible class once a week for 40 minutes is just talking about pop psychology, feel good stuff, something you got out of a book other than the Bible, people in Bible class ought to be learning about the Bible. <laughs> the Bible. What it is, what it says, what it does, what it's about, the Bible. And the objective of the teaching is that students learn to obey the word. Let us teach you how to put into practice the words of Christ. And we must also train disciples to teach others so that they continue this cycle. Now with each generation there are new tools and methods that are developed to fulfill our our, our kind of educational goals for example, Bible class, you know, that was developed to enable a more effective way of teaching different groups within the church, the young, the old, the married, the, those not married, unmarried. We now use a variety of media tools like overheads, not anymore, but we do use computers now, photocopiers, all, all, all the modern technology to teach. You know, Jesus used the technology of His time. He used word pictures and parables. He did miracles in order to teach. We also take advantage of different people's skills to vary our approach to different groups and ages. We use music, we use puppets, we use all kinds of things. But the objective is always the same, to teach people the words of Christ, to teach about the words and how to obey the words. These are permitted because the New Testament doesn't tell us how or when or where to teach. This is left to our judgment It needs to be done decently and orderly, of course. But the New Testament tells us to teach the disciples to obey all of Jesus' words. How we do it, that's up to us. Number three, the fellowship ministry. There's such a logical progression here. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching and to fellowship. People are converted through the preaching of the gospel. Converts are taught in the teachings and the commands of Christ. Then they are integrated into the congregation of believers. As it does with many other important concepts, the New Testament uses like a special word to describe this integration, uses the word fellowship. Some translate the word into communion. It's a word that means more than just becoming part of a group. It means actually sharing what the other person or persons in the group have. For example, it's the difference between being being inside my house or being inside my house for a meal. So the delivery person comes inside my house to bring the pizza. He's inside my house for a moment. But then he leaves. The people inside my house eating the pizza, those people I have fellowship with. You see what I'm saying? There's There's a difference there. Fellowship is also the word used to describe what Christians experience when they share Christ. He's what we share. What do you think we have in common? Well we don't have anything in common. I grew up speaking French with an Italian dad. I was a, you know, raised Catholic. I was a school teacher. I come from Canada. You know, we don't have anything in common as far as that's concerned. What do we have in common? We share Christ. Why, why is this African-American sister, what does what she have in common with me? We're different cultures. We're different colors. We're different genders. We probably have much different background. What, what is it that we have to share? We have Christ. We share Christ. And I don't know her, but I'm already closer to her than people who are related to me by blood. Why? Because I don't share Christ with them. But I do share Christ with her. See what I'm saying? Fellowship is also the word to describe what Christians, as I say, experience. They share Christ. It's the sharing of Him that places our relations and in our interactions in church on a much higher level than our ordinary friendships and family relationships with those who are not Christians. Let's face it, regardless of who they are, my relationship with other Christians is fellowship because we both share Christ. And conversely, Regardless of who they are or how close they are, I cannot have fellowship with one who is not a Christian. I can be friends with them. I can love them. I can even be married to them, but I cannot have fellowship with them. I use my mother as an example. She's been gone now. She's passed away many, many years. My mother was not a religious person. She had no interest and so on and so forth. I loved my mother. I respected my mother Uh, My mother was a single mom. My dad died when I was very young. I was an only child. So she she had to work hard to raise me. I appreciated her. The one thing her and I never shared, Christ. So my mom and I, we never had fellowship. We never had it. We never talked about the Lord. We never talked about the word. Never. We talked about everything else, the grandkids, the kids, the weather, the politics, health, all that stuff, money, jokes, TV, Favorite actors? Never Jesus. Never Jesus. So regardless of who they are or how close they are, you cannot have fellowship with someone who does not share Christ with you. In Acts 2, 43 and 44, it says, Everyone was a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Here we see the joy and the extent of this sharing being expressed by these new Christians. They they shared the excitement of seeing the power of God at work. They shared a new sense of community as ones who had left an old life behind and begun a new one with fellow believers. They share their time and lives together along with the joy of their uh, their newfound faith. And so the pattern of fellowship established by the early church provides a good example for us to follow today as Christians. The ministry, therefore, of fellowship is the effort to facilitate and enable Christians to participate in and enjoy each other's lives and faith in Christ. It's not just about pizza. It's not just about eating chicken after church on Sunday. That's the vehicle, but it's not the destination. The destination is that while we eat, we have fellowship. We are sharing our faith. People from different backgrounds, different cultures, different schedules. We need to work at sharing our time, our faith, our service, our meals, our lives together with Christ. And that requires organization. It requires effort and it requires planning and so on. So that's the ministry of fellowship. And so the ministry of fellowship has as its primary goal the creation of opportunities for Christians to come together and share Christ, whether it be in social gatherings, service projects, or times for reflection and thanksgiving. If Christians don't take the time to bond with other Christians in fellowship, they become vulnerable to attack through temptation and isolation. That's why fellowship is so, so very important. All right. Stay with me. Number four, worship. In 42, Acts two forty two, see it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So the next ministry we see in sequence is the ministry of worship. So in Acts Luke describes it briefly with reference to prayer and communion. The breaking of bread meant a meal or communion depending on the context. So now Luke only mentions what the disciples began to do as they were initially converted. Later on we see that the Christian public worship included five basic elements. So here he simply alludes to the time of worship. Later on we find out what is it that they did when they gathered publicly worship. Private worship is much more inclusive and flexible. Why? Because everything we have is offered to God. Romans chapter 12 verses one and two. Right? We offer to God our, our entire selves, our entire lives as a living sacrifice. So if you're a jogger you can run for Christ and offer that for Christ. I like to play golf and, and, and when I, before I tee off I say, Lord, you know Whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. I'm alive. I'm breathing in the fresh air. I'm looking at this beautiful uh, place here and I have the time and the resources and the ability to enjoy this sport. Thank you so much. It doesn't matter if I play well or not. You've blessed me and I'm playing to your honor and to your glory. Does that sound a little too charismatic-y to you? Too bad because I'm going to keep doing it. Okay, And then when we play as a foursome, you know, I have some golf buddy there, all members of the church, you know, and we put Monday's is my day off, so we play on Mondays. You know, and, we, and then on the 18th hole, when we get to the 18th hole, you know, everybody gets out of their carts. Grown men, we hold hands, make a circle and take turns you know, to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, what a fantastic day you've given us. Please help Ron with his chipping. You know. <laughs> And tell Bobby not to cheat. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. But, 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 but that's not a joke. That, we do that. We do that because we're just so filled with thanksgiving for, for what He's given us, this simple sport, this simple moment. You know? How blessed we are. I'm the most blessed of men. Most blessed of men. So private worship is very, is very flexible. You understand I mean, if somebody likes to play the piano at home, they're playing the piano. Lord, I'm playing the piano to Your honor and to Your... Yeah, sure. You know, whatever I do, I do it decently, orderly. Something that's good and clean, obviously, that passes that kind of test. But I, I do it you know, to Your honor and glory. Public worship. OK, that's a different story. Public worship, we have, we have some guidelines we have a pattern here for public worship that God gives us. And I think we're pretty familiar with that. I'll just go over them very, very quickly. We take the communion, of course. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, First Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. I'm not going to read all those passages. Simply to establish this is the biblical idea of what we do publicly, corporately. We also offer prayer, Acts 2, C. We Sing praises. Again, this lesson is not going to be on the use or not the use of instruments of music. I think we can prove that uh, from the Bible. But the singing of praises to God is part of our public worship, isn't it? Acts 2.47, Ephesians 5.19. The teaching of God's word, whether from the pulpit or the classroom, Acts 2.42, Acts 20 and 7. And then, of course, giving to support the church, 1 Corinthians 16.2 and Acts two. 45. So in the New Testament, these are the only activities taught or practiced in Christian public worship. No parades, no special traditions, no rituals of any kind other than baptism. Baptism and the breaking of bread are the only, quote, rituals, if you wish, that are in the Bible, in the New Testament, for Christians to uh, to practice, right? No, no bands, no parades, no smoke, no candles, no, no, things like that. Those are all human additions. That was the whole point of the Restoration Movement. Let's clear the deck. Let's get rid of that stuff. It's getting in the way. Let's just keep what the scriptures tell us. I told you yesterday. We have such a great idea. We have such. We have the right idea. Someone says, "Why do you just say that the churches of Christ? They're always fighting." Blah blah blah. I tell them because we've got the right target. We're shooting at the right thing. We have the right instruments to shoot at. Sometimes we don't hit it, sometimes we miss it completely, but at least we're aiming at the right thing. And so, as a church, a New Testament church, we follow these guidelines in preparing our public worship to God when we meet. Of course, As the church grows in numbers it requires a certain organization to make sure that the communion elements are on hand and prepared. People are selected and trained to serve as prayer leaders and worship leaders and so on and so forth, teachers. This organization, this effort to practice these elements in accordance with the Bible require time and effort of a lot of people. And this effort to prepare a public worship service that is biblical and relevant and orderly and effective, This is the work of those who are part of the worship ministry. So for worship to be meaningful, which means that it truly honors God and blesses the worshiper, a lot of details have to be be taken care of. Making sure that all the details are taken care of from providing a nursery to hearing devices for those who need them and everything in between. That's the work of the worship minister. Some people think, you know, I'm the worship minister. With that, and and in, in a lot of churches, that means that's the guy that organizes the three or four or ten people up front that, you know, that, that form some sort of chorus you know, to sing. Well, that's a very limited idea of what a worship minister is. There's a lot more to worship than just the singing part. OK. All right. Last thing. Uh, the service ministry, verse 45, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So in verse 45 we see the natural outcome of the cycle. Watch now, I'm going to put it together. Sinners forgiven for sins who are taught Christ's word and begin to share their new life with other believers and worship God. The natural outcome of this is love. Love for God and love for one another. So a concrete example of this love is seen in verse 45. What are they doing in Jerusalem? Well, they're, they're starting to serve each other. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke doesn't mention specifics. He simply says that they pool their resources in order to take care of any needs that came up. This activity pleased God, Matthew 5.16, but it impressed the community as well. Because once people learn of the love of Christ through the gospel and respond to that love and obedience, once they begin to experience the love of Christian brethren and share in thankful worship and praise to the God who is love, there's only one place for you to go. And what is that? That's to return that love by serving other people. How many times has it happened to you that a new Christian after a couple of months comes up to you, if you're a minister, an elder, deacon, whatever, and say, is there something I can do? I want to do something. Well why do you think, they, you think they got nothing to do? They got dead time? Nobody's got dead time. Even retired people don't have any dead time. Right? You wonder how you managed to go to work all those years. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that when somebody says, is there anything I can do, what they're saying to you is, I'm overflowing with love and I got I to give it to somebody. Tell me to do something. Wash the floor. Deliver some food, please i got to love. i got to love somebody. That's service. And so the service ministry of the church is quite varied, but the objective of this ministry is motivated by the same spirit that moved the early Christians to pool their resources in the service of other people. That motivation is to express the love of Christ to others as it was expressed to Him. Now the service ministry is broken down and I'm going to explain to you a little later on how it's broken down in the ministry system. Okay, So now you have a brief description of each biblical ministry as it appears in the book of Acts. Evangelism, education, fellowship, worship and service. All right. One more piece here. I've also told you that this passage also contained the relationship between ministry and church growth. And here it is again. When the church is active in ministry, the Lord will cause it to grow. Acts 2.47b, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Note that the very last sentence in the passage ties everything together, as I mentioned before. They were busy preaching to the lost and baptizing repentant believers. They focused on teaching the disciples to obey all the words of Christ. They provided encouragement and opportunity for fellowship and worship, and this led to the natural outpouring of love seen in Christian service. And what was the outcome? Jesus added to the number. This is why the objective is ministry, not growth. We minister, He adds. Don't worry about the adding part. You just worry about the ministry part. So here's the crux of the matter. If you want your congregation to grow, you must effectively minister in every single area. The more effective and integrated the ministry, the more uh, uh, dynamic the growth. In the most simple of terms, organized ministry equals unlimited growth. OK. Now that you have the theory, I need five volunteers. Those who are awake can volunteer. I need five volunteers. Can I see some hands, please? Not just man- Oh, Of course. Yes. Come forward. Sheesh. Yes, of course. Yeah, Lisa, you too. Now we got girls. Now let's get the boys up here. Oh, have you got your hand up back there? You're just stretching. Oh, go. Come on up. That's three. Any other brave souls? Come on. Don't worry about public humiliation. There's nothing to worry about. Come forward. One, two, three, four, five. All righty. One, two, three, four, five. Now, Here's the plate. Remember the plate. Remember this plate here. So the plate here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. See what I'm saying? So the plate here, right? You, you got to balance it, right? It's like minutes, See, it's not that easy, right? Hang on a second. I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it. There we go. Uh, come on, baby. Don't fight me. There we go. See that's me. A little applause, please. Thank you. I said, you know, when you get it spinning, then you get it. OK, so here's yours. and Here's yours with the, the, little, the little knob. OK. OK. I want you to all stand in line in front of me. Uh huh. And one more. OK, stand in line. Not too close now because you're going to bump into each other. You stand a little further apart over here. A little over here. Oh, come on, come on. No, a little further over here. There we go. Uh, uh, no, over here. I'll get you. i have to get you all in the shot here. Come on. Uh, over here. Uh, now when I say go, I want you to get those five places. Ready? One, two, three. Go. Get them all spinning. Come on. All, oh, geez. Come on. Oh, let's go. Go easy now. Go easy. Okay, we got two. We got three. We got four. We, oh, we got four. We got three. We got four. Oh, come on, John. Got four, three, two. Okay. Keep spinning, give them a little tap every once in a while. Oh, the, the trick is keep it straight. John. So the question is how, how many elders do we need to get the plate spinning? Okay, yeah, whoa, well. All right, good enough. Thank you, thank you. Uh, just put that stuff down over there. All right. The last thing I want to say then. We will take another break before we uh, we'll take a little longer break. Thank you very much, uh, volunteers. Now the reason I did that, aside from uh, publicly humiliating some of the members here, is to give you a warning. Okay, To give you a warning. I mean, what I'm saying to you there's nothing radically new about it. You know, ministry equals growth. I mean, really, that's pretty simple stuff. And that there are five ministries in the book of Acts. And if we do those five and do them well, the Lord will add to the church. Pretty easy to understand. However, it's not as easy as it looks to do. The guy in the video, you know, he had those things spinning up there and away we go. You know, but When you actually try to get five of these little plates spinning at the same time, it's not that easy. It's the same thing in church work. It's not that easy to get all of these five ministries actually functioning effectively and simultaneously. But as I said before, that's the goal. At least if you know what you're shooting for, you know how well you're doing or not well you're doing. And I guarantee you the the excitement that you will actually feel when you sense that the church is getting this lift here because things are popping, things are happening, will be worth the effort.